today's episode, you'll hear my conversation with AG, who is the anonymous host of Muller She Wrote. She's a veteran, PhD, a federal government executive, comedian, and author. We recorded this episode back in February before the corona pandemic was here, but I still want to air this episode because AG makes a lot of interesting points about government and her story is fascinating. When she was working for the government, her role was just six people under Trump. Previously, she was in the Navy and faced military sexual trauma. She was talked out of reporting it. She reflects on her journey, on the administration, what's going on, and what we can do to help hold people accountable, and so much more. I'm just, I'm so excited and honestly very honored that you came here today, and I'm really thrilled to be sitting across from you and to ask you all of the things... (laughs) We all are dying to know. You know, we have so much to discuss in terms of what's going on right now. But first, I'd like to give some background on you, or or at least whatever background we can without uh, compromising your anonymity, which is incredibly important. You've stayed anonymous because you don't want to violate the Hatch Act. And before we even get into your background and all of that. I I would love for you to just explain to listeners who may not know what the Hatch Act is, what it is, how it works, and and why your remaining anonymous protects you. Um, Sure. So forever, the Hatch Act, I mean, not forever, obviously, but in many recent years, the Hatch Act basically says that if you work for the executive branch of the government, you are not allowed to endorse or oppose a candidate running for a political party seat. So whether it's president, whether it's even at the local level, you can't endorse and or fundraise anyone by running for political office using your name and using your office. Mm. So like when Kellyanne Conway goes on television and says, I'm the president's whatever, whatever. And I do that. And I endorse this or I oppose this person. She's actually violating the Hatch Act. The Trump administration violates the Hatch Act all the time. On the daily. Hmm. Yes. And what was interesting is is about, like, I've, I took my job at the executive branch in the government the same day Obama took his job. We took, we swore our oath on the same day. And he actually inspired me to work for the government with the, you know, his old JFK, like, ask not what your country can do for you. Mm. And then when Trump was sworn in and we were like, okay. And I started to not, you know, clear, like clearly trying to be vocal about how I didn't like Trump, but you can't do that in the federal government. You can't, I mean, you can say, oh, what a D bag or whatever, but you can't say I'm going to raise money to work to fight his reelection or whatever. That's illegal mm-hmm. or un- well, I shouldn't say illegal. I should say it's a violation of the Hatch Act because as we know, violations of the Hatch Act don't have any consequences. Uh, Even though they're supposed to. Well, it's up to the boss. Hmm. They say this is wrong and the boss can decide what they're going to do. We've always had just these sort of norms, these sort of toothless mm. laws um, that well, we thought we could get away with for so long. Yeah, almost almost like boundaries for decorum. But as you work in the executive branch... Your boss is Donald Trump, and he's not enforcing violations of the Hatch Act because, to your point, Kellyanne Conway and Rudy Giuliani and everyone who work for him works for him is out there 
violating it every day. A hundred percent. So when my position in the government was taken away, and I can't tell you about the details of that yet, Mm. my defense is equal justice under the law, which is you can't hold me to Hatch Act violations, even though I I actually didn't ever violate the Hatch Act. (laughs) But the weird thing is, is that right in the middle of Trump's administration, he sent out a memo to everyone saying, we have new rules for the Hatch Act. First of all, there's um, social media rules now. You can't tweet negatively. Uh, You can't tweet fundraising for political, uh, people running for political office. You can't put it on Facebook, et cetera. But then he specifically said, you can't say anything bad about Trump, his name. He specifically brought his name up, which is odd because the Hatch Act itself says you can't oppose a candidate, a, pol- a candidate running for political office. And Trump has been that since day one. The, the day after he was elected, he fi- the day, actually the day he was elected, he filed for 2020 campaigning so that all of his money could go to campaign funds. And so he's always been a candidate for office. And so we've never been able to say bad things about him, but he felt it necessary to put his specific name in there. Mm. And as you've seen, he punishes people who say negative things about him, but doesn't punish anyone for saying negative things about his political opponents. And because that unevenness exists, that's sort of where my lawsuit comes from. Mm. To say, you know, you can't apply this to me and not Kellyanne Conway, for example. So you were fired? Um, Not technically. My position Mm. was moved across the country. Um, If you remember when Mick Mulvaney last August got up in front of a crowd of people and said, firing people that you don't like from the government's very hard, but we figured out a way to do it. We move their jobs across the country and tell them they can move or be fired. It's a management decision. It's a loophole in the rules. And um, he did it with the entire EPA. Mm-hmm. If you remember, they moved the whole, all the offices from Washington, D.C. to Kansas. And they were like, oh, we're going to move them out of their liberal city and into Kansas. And they're all going to say no. So we just, got, we just got rid of a bunch of EPA scientists that we couldn't fire otherwise that way. They did that to me last April. It's odd to me that they're so willing to do all of this so brazenly, so out in the open, to admit on TV what they're doing and then do it, even though it's technically not allowed, to play favorites, to behave in in these ways. It screams of authoritarianism. It screams of rules under a dictatorship rather than a democracy. And... I'm curious if you can explain to listeners, it's so hard to know what I can ask you because I don't want to give anything away. If, if you can explain with some relative anonymity staying in place, your positioning, you know, you, you went into the executive branch uh, at the same time President Obama did when he was first inaugurated. How close in the executive branch would you say prior to your forced firing or leaving of your job, however they would put it. How close would you say you were to the president? I can give you a perfect example. Mm. Do you know Lisa Page of Page and Struck? The text messages that, oh, oh, Lisa, oh, you know, when he did that horrible act out of the texts 
between yeah. Page and Strzok. Lisa Page is a GS-14 in the executive branch. Which means? Uh, General Schedule 14. It's like a rank. Mm. When you work for the government, you have a rank. So you're either General Schedule or you're um, executive mm. level. I was the exact same rank as Lisa Page. Her and I are both GS-14s. So she was a lawyer in the Office of General Counsel. I can't tell you what agency I work for because I would be violating the Hatch Act, but I am also a GS-14. Um, there are three of me of my position in the country, just three of us. Mm. And so if that gives you sort of a level, we were six people below Trump. Mm. Six people below the president of the United States. Yeah. If you go to my associate director, director, undersecretary, secretary, and then undersecretary, secretary, that's, and then Trump. It's just so mind blowing. <laughs> it's okay though. There are literally thousands of people like just at that level because mm -hmm. the, they've, they've worked so hard to remove the bureaucracy between the secretary of your agency and line employees that there weren't, there's just not that many people between you and them. And that's, that's good. That's good. You don't want that bureaucracy there. Adding something like Space Force, for example, is adding bureaucracy because you're just putting levels between what the Air Force was already doing and the president. You're just adding a whole new silo, I guess. Hmm. Just absolutely ridiculous. But that's where I was. And, and, as Mick Mulvaney spoke about figuring out how to fire employees who are unfireable, when did you find out that you were being essentially forced into losing your job? Four months before he made those public remarks. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And do you know why? Uh, they, they haven't. The only reason they've given me is, uh, well, you know, we're just centralizing everything, which is interesting because when I say there's three of me in the country, it's because there's three offices in the country. There's a West region, a South region, and an East region. East region is DC. South region is San Antonio. West region is San Diego. I had to move to San Diego to take the job because they felt it very important that I was in the West region office. And what they did was they, first of all, completely got rid of the South region so that there were only two regions. The Trump administration mm -hmm. got rid of the South region. 100%. And then they said... And we're moving your job, West Region, to D.C., where East Region is. And I said, but I thought it was very important that I be in the San Diego office because that's the West Region office. And they said, yeah, well, we changed our minds and we're doing this now. And then when they moved me, I declined the position. Um, I just, I chose to be fired. And they said okay, well, then you need to show up every day in the San Diego office. And I was like, no, that makes no sense. You told me it was essential that I be in the D.C. office. And so I filed for telework. And they declined. And so now we're in a battle of me basically saying, just fire me and give me my severance and a clean record so I can come back when there's a reasonable president. Hmm. And uh, they are fighting that. Against, they're fighting against me. It's so odd, though, that they would tell you that you were fired unless you were willing to move. And then when you say, I'm unwilling to move, they say, well, then you have to stay in your office 
which we were threatening to fire you from because you were unwilling to move from said office. It's it's so blatantly ridiculous. Yeah, but who do we complain to? That, when we file my complaint, mm-hmm. who do we say this is so blatantly ridiculous to? Yes. That's what frightens me is that there's no one reasonable in charge anymore. And everyone who was reasonable by some measure in the beginning of this presidency has resigned, been fired, moved, moved, mm-hmm. censured. I mean, it's really frightening. Yeah, we've spoken to Jim Baker and Andy McCabe and asked them, if you at the FBI see something or the Office of General Counsel see something that's egregious and horrible, where do you go? Who do you tell? You can't tell the attorney general. He's clearly compromised. And we can't go to the president. Uh, The only person I can think to go to is Adam Schiff. Go to the House Intelligence Committee. And, I, you know, people would say, oh, you're partisan. You're acting in your favor of your party. But I can't think of any institution in our country right now that isn't compromised. And that is where I would go would be the House Intelligence Committee. And then what can they do? Because they can't get through the Senate. And they can't get through the courts right now. We're, mm-hmm. we're, st- we're still fighting his tax returns. We're still fighting the Mueller memos, the Mueller um, grand jury material mm-hmm. filed July 27th of last year right. by Nadler. Why is that? Why did Nixon take three weeks and this was July? I, mm-hmm. And it's the same judicial system. Right. We're always incredibly grateful for our sponsors, but in a time like this, when so much is up in the air, I'm extra grateful for them because they're enabling us to keep bringing this content to you. And our next sponsor feels very apropos for this time. Elixinol has a simple mission. They improve the quality of people's lives through the power of cannabinoids like CBD. Whether it's work, kids, parents, the economy, your health, what's happening in the world right now, Life is stressful, and that is why they have designed a product to help cope with daily stress and promote balanced mood and vitality. Their stress-less CBD capsules deliver relief naturally with 15 milligrams of full-spectrum CBD and 300 milligrams of ashwagandha per capsule. And for anyone who doesn't know, ashwagandha is an adaptogen that is incredibly good for you. They've combined these two things because they know that even occasional stress deserves regular care. The stressless CBD capsules help your mind and body cope with occasional stress. They promote vitality and they use no harsh solvents or toxic chemicals at all. Whether you're a parent adjusting to the new world order um, or a millennial who is absorbing this second crazy economic hit of our working lives, we all deserve to stress less. So if you would like to try Elixinol, they're giving my listeners 20% off your first order. You can go to Elixinol.com, that's E-L-I-X-I-N-O-L.com and enter the promo code WIP, that's WIP, for work in progress for 20% off your first order. Elixinol.com for stress less. So I want to talk about how Mueller, she wrote, came to be, because it feels to me like a great act of resistance and a a real act of 
true patriotism to tell the truth in the face of authoritarianism and potentially crushing fascism in America, not to bring everybody down. But <laughs> womp, womp. how did this how did this happen? What made you want to do this? How does it work? Well, I've always been very, very engaged in politics since I was a kid. Mm. And then when Obama ran for office and like I said, he said, ask not where your country, I had been out of the military for a while, couldn't rejoin the military because of uh, a disability um, for uh, PTSD, but wanted to help my country, went to work for the VA, took the oath of office the same day Obama did just by happenstance, which also happened to be my birthday and Martin Luther King Day. Wow. And so that like just was so, I was so inspired uh, to do that. And then when Trump took over and things started being privatized in my agency and things started being taken apart and dismantled and he, like they actually came to us on, uh, under the guise of modernization and said, you need to get rid of, for every, for every five rules, you need to get rid of four. And like, we're like, what? This is, what? This is, we can't. These are laws, you know, <laughs> and like we tried our best. So I started the podcast because I, I was watching, I think it was around October of 2017, like four months after Mueller had been appointed and MSNBC was re-airing a documentary they made about Watergate called All the President's Men Revisited. Mm. And Maddow was on it and Chris Matthews and all these folks from MSNBC, like all your favorite talking heads. Mm. And they're talking about Watergate from 1973, 1974. And Mueller had just been appointed. And I thought to myself, I bet in 20 years, 30 mm. years, they're going to be doing a documentary about the Mueller investigation. I want to be a part of that. Like it seems so historical and so important uh, to our another test of our constitution, another test of our checks and balances system, another test of our judiciary, another mm. test of our grit as a idea of a mm -hmm. as an idea of a country. And I was like, how do I do that? Well, I don't have a journalism degree. I'm not on CNN. I'm not Matto. I'm not on MSNBC. And I am a comedian and comedians have podcasts. I'm going to do a podcast. So that's how it started. I put out a message on, on Facebook and I said, who wants to join me? I'm looking for some other female comedians. I wanted everyone to be a female uh, or at least identify as a woman. And then I, and then I asked people for ideas for names. And mm. uh, I said, if you were going to have a podcast about Bob Mueller, what would you call it? And, uh, a very close friend who now works, who's now on the staff, Kanai Williams suggested Mueller, she wrote, and I fell in love with it immediately. And I said, that's it. And then that weekend, the first indictments dropped uh, in the Gates and Manafort case. And I'm like, that's it. We have to do it today. And so I just bought some microphones from Amazon, set up in my kitchen, and we started. Amazing. It's such a good title. Thank you. It's such a good title. I'm sorry. It's going to waste now. Everyone's like, oh, Mueller's done. What are you going to do? I'm like, I'm I disagree. I, I don't think it's done in any way. And I think when we do get to the day where Trump is in court and the report is actually entered into evidence and we go point by point through every violation of the law that Mueller found, people will be shocked at the way that it 
was covered up and spun. And and even it's shocking to me that so many of the details are now so public and for whatever reason, no one seems to care. Right. All these Mueller uh, memos that are being dumped in the BuzzFeed CNN mm-hmm. FOIA, a Freedom of Information Act yes. lawsuit. And, and we're reading through all this stuff. And of course, Kushner's interview is totally redacted. Uh, there's a 31, Kushner's interview is only four pages. There's another 31 page interview that's completely redacted. And so is the name of the person who was interviewed, like all of this stuff, so relevant. And it's going to be important into modernity, because if you remember, it wasn't until 20, 2018 that we got the Jaworski report from the Nixon Watergate, the, the, the grand jury materials when they wanted mm. the grand jury materials in the Nixon case, mm-hmm. those just became public in 2018. And so I'm, I'm wondering when will these redacted Mueller memos, when will the Mueller grand jury materials mm-hmm. become public? It could be a very long time. Does it worry you that they might not be preserved at all? Given- no. The administration, because I I was just reading a report yesterday about how the administration is deleting memos and reports and recordings on what they're doing with ICE and those policies of separating children from their families and hiding the numbers. And it's it's such an egregious violation of, I mean, every everything, the foundation of our democracy, that records that are meant to be preserved in perpetuity could be erased. And and so. Part of me is afraid of what they might be doing behind the scenes with some of this information. No, I think there are too many patriots at line level that have access to this stuff. Uh, For example, if you remember Comey, who's, by the way, a jerk for all intents and purposes, but um, high five to him for preserving all of his contemporaneous notes and keeping them in a safe in his own home. Mm. And then they're trying to prosecute him for that. And he's like, you can't do that to me. And he's right. You can't. But now that they've replaced Jesse Liu at the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office with a Bill Barr lackey, Mm -hmm. uh, his BFF, Timothy Shea, now I'm concerned that McCabe could be indicted, that they'll impanel a new grand jury to get it done, um, that Comey could be indicted, that that Trump will letting people off the hook, but now, and, and like Roger Stone by trying to, who was convicted by trying to commute his sentence. Mm-hmm. And so you wonder to yourself, well, if he can help his friends, he can hurt his enemies and he will use, he will weaponize the department well, look of justice. What he just to, did to Lieutenant Vindeman. I mean, he is going after his enemies mm-hmm. left, right and center. Yep. And that's, that's truly frightening. Vindeman's brother, who had nothing to do with yeah, just the lost impeachment. His job. Yep. So that's mobby, right? Like, not just you, but your family. You right. Know? Can, can you talk about Lou and, and talk about that for the folks listening who might not know about the shuffling in that arena of the legal system and, and Barr's friend who's being put in? Can you kind of give everyone a little background on that? Yeah, sure. And I'll actually take you a little bit, uh, a step deeper, because... Mm-hmm. They aren't talking about this in the mainstream media. So what what they are talking about in the mainstream media is that there's so there's U.S. attorneys' offices all around the country. Mm-hmm. And when Trump took over, he pretty much fired everyone. Uh, the New York Southern District of New York U.S. attorney was Preet Bharara. I'm sure you've seen him on many shows. He's incredible. He's fantastic. 
he was told he would get to keep his job, but then he eventually was moved out too. So, and this isn't abnormal for when a president comes in to like get rid of all the U.S. attorneys and bring in your own U.S. attorneys. So he did, and Jesse Liu was one of them, and she's the U.S. attorney in the District of Columbia in D.C. So all of the cases, Manafort, Flynn, Stone, probably there were 14 cases handed off by Mueller in Appendix D of the Mueller report that were redacted that we don't know what they were. Most of them probably went to either the District of Columbia or the Southern District of New York. And when you say handed off, you mean handed off for continuation, prosecution? 100% referred out because mm. now we're kind of getting a glimpse into the fact that Rod Rosenstein really narrowed the scope of the Mueller investigation, probably at the behest of Trump, which is against the law. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he he wasn't allowed to follow the money. He didn't look into whether the vote count was changed. Mm-hmm. How, how it was impacted. So uh, he Cohen, for example, handed that off. Like he handed so many things off. Because he found evidence of wrongdoing and needed it to be passed off to other prosecutors to then go and do the rest of the due diligence and prosecute those cases. Because he wasn't allowed to. Because they were outside of his scope. Yes, because his scope was so narrow. So now we're finding out that perhaps a lot of those cases were shut down. We did find out that the Cohen case that was going on in the Southern District of New York was right at the time Bill Barr came in, stopped. And so the act, the judge in that case actually stood up and said, okay, this is a bunch of BS. Close the case. Fisher cut bait. Close the case or shut up, you know, and, and, so he actually, that judge forced that case closed, which allowed them to pick it up at the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, Cy Vance. So now he's, now that's in the Supreme Court because of the Mazar's subpoena trying to get his tax returns. Anyway, you were asking me about Bill Barr and what's going on and how terrible that is. Was that? Yeah, and, and Jesse Liu being Jessie fired Liu. and what that means for us. Yeah, so she, uh, back in the day, uh, if you remember, they were investigating Andy McCabe, who's a good friend of mine, I'd like to say. And they were investigating him for lack of candor. Basically, he when he was, inter- when he was interviewed by the FBI and the inspector general, they asked him if he approved Lisa Page giving information to the Wall Street Journal about the Hillary Clinton case. And at the time he said, no, I didn't know. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. And then two days later he went, oh, I know what they're talking about and called them back up and said, I need to amend what I told you. Yes, I did give that authorization uh, to Lisa Page. And so they said, because he didn't say it, he lied <laughs> or he lacked candor. Actually, they can't even call it lying. And uh, he was like, Jim Comey just got fired. I was just promoted to director of the FBI acting. I was under a little duress and some things were going on. So I apologize for not remembering. For not remembering a random conversation or email or whatever. Yeah, uh, an approval for Lisa Page to go to the Wall Street Journal about a story about, to answer questions about the Hillary Clinton laptop, Mm. Wiener laptop reopening situation. So he... (laughs) The fact I remember it is astounding. And so he he came back and said, sorry, sorry. 
now they're saying they were trying to like Barr came in and now they're trying, they were trying to get him on an indictment. The grand jury didn't return an indictment. The grand jury, the federal grand jury impaneled in, in the district of Columbia under Jesse Liu impaneled that grand jury. They're like, we can't. And so they kept the case open. Normally when they don't return an indictment, you close the case, but they kept the case open. And then, McCabe sued saying you need to close the case or release all of my firing documents as was sued for in a FOIA case. Mm-hmm. And, and the judge agreed. The judge said, uh, all right, look, you either have to shut this down or release the documents. And the department of justice said, we'll release the documents. We'll do it. They're all redacted. It's ridiculous. And they've kept the case open. And now Jesse Liu, who was in charge of that and who, now of course... Who obviously wasn't here to politically retaliate against people. And the U.S. attorney doesn't indict people, right? It's the federal grand jury. But she would be like, think of her like a Marie Ivanovich, Mm -hmm. like a there fighting corruption, somebody in the way, somebody who could tell Mm -hmm. on you if you were coming in and trying to indict McCabe wrongly or indict Comey wrongly or stopping people from being indicted. Giuliani, for example, why hasn't he been indicted? But Parnas and Fruman have been. And you won't see him indicted. It's so corrupt. I mean, this is like mafia rule. This this is like what we see historically happening at the Kremlin. What are we supposed to do about this? Vote in November. That's all we can do. That's all we can do is vote in November for not Trump, whoever it is. And why do you think there are still so many people, and I get that it's not the majority of people, but they're certainly very loud. Why do you think there are people who are supporting Trump, who like to see what he's doing, who think that this stuff with Giuliani and going after the Bidens and all of this is great? What? What do you think, where do you think that comes from in your experience? And I, and I do want to go back, you know, through your history, but you've served your country in so many ways throughout the course of your life. And we'll tell listeners about all of that soon. But I, I'm just curious if your experience in so many branches of military and government gives you some kind of perspective that that maybe in my shock I'm missing. Why Why are people rooting for this kind of corruption, for this kind of political retribution, for this abandoning of all of our rules? I don't know if you're going to like the answer. (laughs) I think it's because hate is a drug that people are addicted to. Mm. Meanness and hate uh, is easy and has instant gratification. Mm. And I think it's an addiction, exactly like heroin or opiates or Mm. cocaine would be an addiction. I think there are a lot of people in this country who are just absolutely addicted to how hate makes them feel because they aren't or haven't experienced any real, authentic, beautiful emotions. And so I think that that's where they go. Honestly, it's the dopamine hit makes you feel powerful, like better. you're winning. 
and specifically for, mm-hmm. uh, have you ever seen the movie American History X? Mm-hmm. Uh, when he goes out and starts recruiting these kids to become white power Nazis, he goes for low self-esteem, mm-hmm. abused, hated, neglected people, men, um, the toxic masculinity thing, we could do a whole hour on that, mm. but who don't have anyone to, or anything to make them feel good. And he just comes in and starts loving them and giving them a place to be. Mm. And when you do that for someone, I think they'll believe whatever you tell them to. Mm-hmm. If they're that desperate for a voice. And if you give people a place to put their fear or their sadness that lets them get riled up rather than remain feeling fearful or sad. A lot of us are talking about our plans, what they were at the start of 2020 and certainly how they're changing now. And one of the conversations I hear a lot over dinners and in small groups is discussions about how our fertility fits into those plans. But for some reason, it feels like we're not really having that conversation out in the open. So I think we should. And Modern Fertility is here to help us do that. Back in sex ed, we learned to prevent pregnancy at all costs. We know we have all the tools to prevent pregnancy, but when it comes to wanting to plan ahead for it or safely put that idea on the shelf, everything feels kind of like a mystery, which makes me feel like we need a little bit of fertility ed. Traditional guidance with fertility has been wait and see, but now we've got tools and apps that help us plan and track everything in our lives, finances, steps taken daily, careers, school, our cycle. So shouldn't we be doing that with our fertility too? That's where modern fertility comes in. It is an easy and affordable way to test your fertility hormones at home with a simple finger prick. You mail it in with a prepaid label and you'll get your personalized results within 10 days. Traditional testing of these hormones at a doctor can cost over $1,000, but modern fertility only costs $159 to get all the same information. And if you go to modernfertility.com WIP, you can get $20 off your test. Plus, if you have an HSA or FSA, you can use those dollars on Modern Fertility. You're going to get insight into how many eggs you have, your hormone levels, and any reproductive red flags. The results go in-depth into what each and every hormone means, and you can talk one-on-one with a fertility nurse to review your results and figure out what your options are for your next steps. Whether you want kids today, way in the future, or maybe, maybe not one day, you deserve to have the information at hand to make the decision that's best for you. So right now, Modern Fertility is offering our listeners $20 off the test when you go to modernfertility.com slash WIP. That means your test will cost $139 instead of the hundreds or thousands that it could cost you at a doctor's office. Get some data and some peace of mind and $20 off your test at modernfertility.com slash WIP. One of our sponsors makes one of the coolest products I've seen in a long time. Rothy's shoes are made from repurposed plastic water bottles. To date, Rothy's has transformed over 50 million water bottles and counting into super cute shoes. They own and operate their manufacturing workshop, which means they get to prioritize sustainability every step of the way. 
And I love that Rothy's ship directly in their shoebox. There's no unnecessary packaging. The, my other favorite thing about them is that they are machine washable. Whether you are a dog owner like me, a super active person, or you've got a kid, you know that your fresh whites aren't so fresh after a couple of days. And with Rothy's, you can just toss them in the washing machine and they're back to looking like new. Plus, because they have this seamless knit that they've made out of thread made from these plastic bottles, they are so ultra comfortable, there's no break-in period. Essentially, they're the greatest. If you want to check out the ever-changing array of super cute sneakers and flats and bags and more that Rothy's has available, you can go to rothys.com slash Sophia. Style and sustainability are meeting to create what just might be your new favorites. That's rothys.com, R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash Sophia. I want to I go back a bit because you are a veteran and I'm curious about that part of your history. You know, you mentioned you were in service and then couldn't go back into the military because of PTSD and found a way to be in service again, working in the government. And I wonder when in your life, was, was it at a very young age? Were you a kid? When did this service bug hit you? When did you know you wanted to serve your country? Uh, my dad passed when I was young. I was 16. Mm. He passed away from complications, pancreatic cancer, due to exposure to Agent Orange because he was in Vietnam. Wow. And the love story between my dad and my mom, like, right, like I have all their letters still that they wrote back and forth uh, when she was in Cleveland and he was stationed in Hawaii. And then they got married. Then they moved to Hawaii together in 1966, which, by the way, mid-century modern tiki is my life right now. Mm. Uh, but just that whole beautiful love story and just I grew up in that nuclear family. Uh, I was with the whole, the whole family was together until my father passed away. And just romanticizing that Pearl Harbor, not 1941 Pearl Harbor, but 1966 Pearl Harbor, like that military thing. Mm. I was, I, and then when, you know, my father passed away, left me a little money for college, ran out of it halfway into sophomore year. Doesn't go very far. And, and then being like, well, what do I do now? I'm 20. I am, have no more money for college. I, ditched all the time in high school so I have no scholarship and like what do I do and so I decided to join the military I thought I had this romanticized vision of it in my head Obama had not even been on the scene yet this is back these are Bill Clinton days so I was like oh what you know what could go wrong Bill Clinton's in office and so I joined the Navy and that's that's how that happened I was just drawn to do something. And where do you go when, when you first enlisted in the Navy? How did your life change? Oh, oh gosh. Well, we couldn't go to, I was living in Los Angeles at the time, trying to be an actress, quote unquote. I actually got as a, a 19 year old parts, SAG extra parts in, uh, Wayne's world to army of darkness, uh, a, a pilot with Rhea Perlman, following cheers called Pearl. I was going to be in that classroom. Like I got a lot of really good work. Like 
but yet I was so young that I thought if you're not Meryl Streep, you're a failure. So I was just like, well, this isn't going well. And I had all those parts. <laughs> uh, it was so funny. So young. And it was just so long ago. And then I don't know, it was in Los Angeles and the MEPS, which is the military entrance processing station had burnt down here in Los Angeles in the riots, the Rodney King riots. Wow. So I had to enlist, I enlisted here, but I had to go down to San Diego to process in because the MEPS burnt, burnt down in the riots. And so how long were you in San Diego? Oh, for like two minutes. We just drove down to oh, okay. be processed out and be flown to Chicago, to Great Lakes, to go to boot camp. That's where you went. Okay. Was it, was it a crazy thing to go from being a college kid to being in boot camp in Chicago? Oh, I don't even, I, the, you know what was crazier than the disciplinary lifestyle change was the weather, honestly. Tell me about it. <laughs> it was like a negative 60 with the wind chill in February in Chicago, right on the lake. And just, I was like, what have I done? Like, <laughs> I didn't care so much about the military part as I did about the snow. It was a very bad decision. And... What happens when you finish basic training? Where where did you go? I went to A school, like the letter A, which I was uh, I was one of the first women into the nuclear program. So they had just opened the billet uh, for N Naval Nuclear Power Training Command to women. I was the fourth. Was well, four of us signed up at the same time, so I was one of the first four women into the nuclear program. Very hard program to get into. You have to be very good at calculus and nuclear physics and math and materials, heat transfer, fluid flow, stuff like that. You had to take an extra, like two extra tests to get in. The attrition rate of new school is 63%. Only 37% of people made it out of nuke school because it was so hard. And I was like, well, that's for me then, you know, cause I have to go super hardcore, but brains, not like Marine Corps, but like brains. And uh, so they, they offered me a huge signing bonus. It was a $60,000 signing bonus. They really needed to recruit women because they just opened it up and they wanted to show everyone that they loved women. And uh, that's, that's how I got into the Navy. They were like, you, math, good, women, come, be nuclear. <laughs> so I went. Right. But you also were testing where you needed to test on those scores and you also made it through the program which as you mentioned not very many people do so sure they needed women but you still were clearly very qualified thank you yes yeah I always want to you know clarify that because just because they needed women didn't doesn't mean they were going to take women who were up to par. That's never how it works it simply means that the doors were no longer closed to the women who were up to par true in the interim between going through that program and, and leaving the military, I know that you experienced, as many women do, a version of trauma that is wrought on women. I don't know what you want to discuss or if you don't want to discuss it at all. Completely, completely up to you. And perhaps maybe the place to begin is just to ask, what is, what is it like being pushed out as a woman who chooses to speak up for herself in that, in that arena? Well, I wasn't 
so much pushed out at that point, mm. but stifled. And I'm happy to talk about it. Okay. And I'm happy to talk about it because I've been in, I was in a documentary about it called The Invisible War. <laughs> and you're talking about military sexual trauma. Shortly after I was in A school, uh, I was raped. I was drugged and raped. And when I went to report it, I was talked out of it. And I was convinced it was my fault. They did such a good job. I feel like they took a class on how to do this. Because not only did they say it to me, like, you know, the typical, uh, were, were you drunk? Were you flirting? What were you wearing? Type of victim blaming. Mm. But then, hey, if you file a false report, I just want to let you know what will happen to you. You'll lose your school. You'll lose your rate. You'll lose your $60,000 signing bonus. You'll lose your GI bill. You'll lose your veterans benefits. You'll lose your health care. You'll lose everything. Your whole life will be a waste of you should just die basically. <laughs> and so I was terrified and super at the same time convinced that it was all my fault. And they do this so often and they're so good at it. I didn't know that though until let's see 2012, the movie came out and this was 95. So what's that? 17 years later when I saw the movie, I had already interviewed for the movie and done my, you know, one-on-one -on -one for the movie, but it wasn't until I saw the movie where they put me in a montage of a bunch of other women saying the exact same things. Were you drunk? Did you do this? You'll lose your rate. You don't file. You'll filing a false report. They tried to charge me with adultery because my rapist was married, not me. Uh, they threatened me with that. And, and when I saw all these women saying the exact same thing and some men too, I was like, like, I'm not crazy. Like, what? Oh, whoa. Mm -hmm. This did happen the way that I thought. Oh, my gosh. And so I was I felt very empowered by that. But mm -hmm. I didn't actually get retribution. The Navy didn't admit that it happened and start compensating me until 2014 or 2013, about a year after the movie came out when the director of Women's Veterans Benefits in D.C. called me because I was in the movie to ask how I was doing. And I said, well, not good. The VA has denied my claim three times over five years saying that it never happened because I didn't report it. And my grades got better after it happened because that's how I cope. So it couldn't have happened because your grades got better. Mm -hmm. and, uh, just because you ended up with HPV, just because you ended up getting an abortion, uh, just because of all this other stuff, that's just all a coincidence and we can't prove it or tie it to anything. So she called me. Her name is retired Brigadier General Allison Hickey. And she asked me how I was doing. She saw the film and I said, not good. And so within two weeks, I got my exam and I got my rating and my compensation. But how many women haven't Don't. and men mm -hmm. and others haven't? I was fortunate enough to be in an Oscar nominated movie and I can't mm -hmm. help but think of the thousands that weren't. Mm -hmm. All the women and men who've been sexually assaulted in the military who've been silenced. And to your point, you don't realize that it's a system when they're essentially grooming you during their attempt at stopping your report. You don't know that it is a procedure almost 
that they really have it down to a science of how to lead the conversation and how to make you feel pressured and how to make you feel afraid and how to make you feel threatened. No, you just literally feel crazy and wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, dang, I did a bad thing. I'll be quiet. I'm so sorry that that happened to you. And I really appreciate you being willing to share your story in the way that you do because you help other people know that they're not crazy. If I could tell any women who are listening or men or anyone who's been assaulted, take it easy on people who victim blame. You'll see women on TV saying those things. She shouldn't have been drinking or women who act like that. That's just going to happen to them or whatever. And the reason I say take it easy on these victim or survivor blamers is because I was one of them. Mm. I was so convinced that it was my fault and that I shouldn't have been drinking. I shouldn't have been flirting. I shouldn't have put myself in that situation. My fault, Mm. my fault, my fault. Because the Navy had convinced me it was my fault that when my best friend was raped and she told me about it, I started saying to her what they said to me. Well, what were you, were you drunk? Did you invite him in? Were you flirting with him? Like, what can you expect? What can you expect from a thing like that? And that is the number one regret of my whole life is that. And the next time you hear anyone victim blaming, before you punch them in the face, ask yourself, are they also a victim? And only saying that because they blame themselves. Mm. Just like, please think of them and don't tear them down and don't tear them apart. They might actually need help. Mm. Wow. So having gone through this, having spent so many years not being taken care of by your country, which you had signed up to serve, what was it that flipped the switch and that made you want to get back into service? Why, why come back to work for the government in 07, 08? Maybe I could help um, other people like me. Maybe I could make it so that the VA didn't just deny your claim because you didn't report it mm. or deny your claim because uh, your grades got better or, you know, maybe help uh, in some way um, to make a difference. And I was really inspired by Obama to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, going back into the lion's den going back to the place to be around people who triggered me all the time, who Mm. this is the, this is the lion's den. This is the spider's nest. This is everyone who's ever hurt me. Not just because I was raped when I was in the military and these are a bunch of veterans, but because the VA denied my claim over and over and over Mm -hmm. again, which is very re-traumatizing to be told that this didn't happen. And you know, you're crazy. It didn't happen. You didn't report it. So you know, go back into that spider's nest, that lion's den was very tough, but I felt like I really needed to change things and help, um, work on women's clinics and, Mm. uh, you know, uh, telemental health so that women who didn't want to show up at the VA because it's, they're surrounded by their predators and their rapists. How can we get them help from home? Yeah, how can we take down barriers to care? That was my number one thing. Uh, while I was there, uh, I, I got my doctorate in health administration. I 
passed my orals the four months before Obama left office. So the, his whole tenure was like my coming up from a GS five to a GS 14 from um, a bachelor's to a master's to a doctorate. Like that was my whole career development time of my life. And, and it began by going back to work at the VA. Yes. It's really incredible. I was in hotel restaurant management before that. <laughs> Management's a strong word. And where does the where does the comedy come into play? Where when did you begin your comedic turn which now informs the way that you're able to I think make a lot of this current governmental upheaval more digestible for your listeners on Mueller She Wrote? Well, I was, I've been into comedy forever. My dad was into comedy. He got me into like mm. George Carlin and, you mm. know, Jonathan Winters and like all these old school uh, comics. I've always loved it. Never thought I would do it. I was a musician. Mm-hmm. Um, then I started writing funny songs and then it turned into a, a career in standup, which actually ended up being pretty good. Like I play the, the main room at the comedy store here or Laugh Factory or the improv on Mel. Like, mm really good gigs with yeah. really like a high profile comedians and uh, t- toured for a while, did that. And it was honestly a coping mechanism mm. for me because most of my jokes have to do with sex or vulnerability or ra- I have rape jokes. Uh, so this was a way for me to laugh at my own pain so that I wouldn't cry about it. Mm. Do you ever, like, I, there's a lyric in one of my songs that says, I feel a little better every time this song is sung. Meaning, like, every time I tell you about this horrible thing, Mm -hmm. it becomes less of a horrible thing. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things, you know, in, in my own version of studying and recovering from trauma, there is real truth in what all the doctors and researchers say, that as we speak our stories, they they move out of our bodies. You know, when you speak something, it leaves, it leaves your insides and, and that it's really always the first step to healing for anyone who's been through whatever varietal of trauma they may have been through in their own personal life. And, and so I, I get that. I get that very much. And I love that in this sort of interim space between your time in the Navy and your time coming back to government at the VA, comedy became an outlet for you, you know, telling stories and making art, whether it's comedy, music, painting, whatever, those things are so important for people. And and you see it in, in research. I, I watched this incredible speech given by a man, a school principal who said, you know how I turned my school from a dangerous school to a high performing school? I fired all the security guards and hired arts teachers. That was like the opening line. And I was like, I'm going to follow this person anywhere, yeah. you know? And we it's did true. that at the VA. Take the security guards out, take the metal detectors out, and put greeters in there. You treat people mm. like a-holes, and they will act like a-holes. You treat people with dignity, they'll rise to the occasion. Mm. It's so beautiful. It's very cool. That's so beautiful. I'm curious, when we get back into you know your, your more recent time in government, because I love, I love this sort of redemptive experience 
and, and healing that you were able to bring in from your own perspective into the VA, the changes you're talking about making and the, and the way that it was healing for you. I, I'm curious as we got to sort of the end of things and Trump being appointed, is there anything, again, that wouldn't jeopardize, you know, your legal standing or anonymity? Are there certain things that stick out to you as really crazy that you witnessed Things that you saw that you were like, this is when the alarm bells should be going off. Yeah, 100%. Uh, we were actually working on, this was at, uh, right around the time Obama allowed transgender people to serve openly in the military. Mm -hmm. And the Department of Defense went, we have no idea how to offer health care to transgender people. Hair on fire, what do we do? And over at the VA, we're like, oh, we've been... We've been servicing transgender folks since the 60s. Like, come over. This is so important you saying this. So this is, the VA has decades of experience yes. with, tra with transgender service members in the military. So many. Well, transgender veterans. Ah. Right? Right. Because you couldn't do it openly. But once you're out of the military, please come, come to Jamaica. Come where the love is. We have health care for everyone. We will, whatever you need. So we Incredible. had comprehensive healthcare Incredible. programs for transgender people. And so we go, hey, hey, Department of Defense, poke, poke, poke. We're the VA. We're both government. What's up? High five. Do you need help coming up with your program for how to care for transgender uh, people? And they're like, oh, that would be so great. So we put together the health program for the Department of Defense. It was eight. The budget was $8 million a year. Uh, the budget for Viagra, by the way, is $43 million a year. Yeah, to put it in perspective, it's nothing. <laughs> it's nothing. It's literally nothing. In fact, it, w it literally was just the cost of health care that would normally be health care for the amount of transgender people that were in the military versus, like, if you had that many non-transgender people, they would cost the, the same. The costs would be the same. Or Yeah. Sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less, but yes, that was the average. The average out. And so... We put together the whole thing. We spent two years doing it, um, putting wow. together the, the health plan for how to care for the health plan for transgender people serving openly in the military. And then the tweet came. Then the tweet came. No transgender people can serve in the military. And we're sitting there. Mattis, who's in charge of this entire program, who did six white papers on how it had no effect on morale in the military, and all of us are just jaws agape. But what? And for what? So Mattis told us, I don't follow tweets. I follow orders. And until I get a written order, we're moving forward. So we did. And it, by the way, it's still, it's still there. It's still going. Trump is trying to say that it's not and is trying to shut it down, but he never gave an official order. So there are still transgender people serving openly in the military and being taken care of their health care is covered because of the program that we all put together. So, And as they should be. The yes. idea that anyone who wants to serve this country should not be allowed because cadet bone spurs who <laughs> draft dodged five times uh, just wants to please a, a, a very small, rabid, prejudiced base. It doesn't make any sense to me. So I, well, I hope that makes you feel better, that it's still cool. And it's it does, cool. actually. It like makes in the military, we're like, psh, psh, whatever, you know, like, no, we're good. They, they, they're still going. It's great. I love how, I mean, there, there's literally no rule of order, but 
I think it's fantastic. But I, but I imagine without a rule of order, people are just trying to stay the course and trying to help us avoid hitting a proverbial iceberg, as it were. Trump's disapproval rating in the military is actually higher than it is in the general public right now. Really? Yeah. It's, it, it's been, his disapproval has been increasing since 2016. His approval rating is tanked. It's in the low 30s uh, in the military. So feel, feel good about that. Hmm. Well, it does make me feel good because it makes me think that people who actually are, people who actually have access to the real policies and the real information as it pertains to the country know how dangerous he is. It's, it's much harder to be swayed by a news report that is admittedly, as, as Fox News you know, admits that it's an entertainment program, not actual news, which I think is insane. Um, <laughs> and I don't know how that's and legal. they're cool with it? Yeah, yeah I don't know how that's it. legal. But uh, it, it makes me happy that people can't be swayed by, quote, news when they're actually in the system and, and looking at well, what's happening Well, these are men and women who are risking their lives, men and women and others who are risking their lives. Yes. We have, what, 109 cases of traumatic brain injury now from the missile attack in a, in Iraq by Iran after the airstrike on um, Qassam Soleimani. So, yeah, I mean, we just carried out an execution. 109, it was an assassination. 109 people with traumatic brain injury, which Trump brushed off as, quote-unquote, headaches. Unbelievable. It was just headaches. They're headaches. They're fine. But these are people who will be affected for life because of traumatic brain injury. As will their families. Yeah. So what can we do? You know, people who are listening right now, how do we support service members? How do we, how do we help show up, you know, to, to reach across? It's not even the aisle, just to reach out to our neighbors and say, hey, we're thinking about you guys in this really crazy time. Is, is there something that would jump out to you? Well, just saying that would be great. But jumping out to me, the first thing that I can think of is vote. Vote. Uh, get Trump out of office. Mm-hmm. Put, put our service men and women in safer hands, more responsible hands. Mm-hmm. We can't. This is not sustainable. Mm-hmm. And there's only one thing we can do about it. Right. Mueller didn't save us. Congress won't save us. We have to do it. And we have to do it with our votes. And whoever it is, I don't care if you are a Bernie supporter or a Warren supporter or a Yang supporter, whoever wins, you have to vote for them. I don't yes. want to hear your, well, they... Well, they are a little bit off on Medicare for all for me, or they're a little, uh, you know, they could stop with your purity tests. Vote. Think of the most vulnerable person you know mm-hmm. and vote for them. Vote for their interests. If you can't do it for yourself, just vote. Are you hopeful for 2020 at all? No, I'm scared. I'm so scared. I am too. I'm so terrified. Because like deep down, I'm like, oh my God, it's going to be like 2018. We're going to have a blue tsunami. Everybody's going to show up. It's going to be rad. But I feel like the country is so sad right now and depressed. And our numbers aren't what they were in 2016. In, and of course, it's just Iowa and New Hampshire so far. But we aren't, she- we aren't seeing the turnout that we would need. Like the 20, we aren't seeing the 2018 turnout. And we need to. And I'm, I'm worried. I'm scared. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we really, we need people to show up. And I think that people are probably discouraged because there was that great turnout in 2018. But the issue is, yes, of course, it was great to take Congress back. But not taking back the Senate means we do not effectively have any checks and balances. And not just so, that, we impeached him. We, we, we 
flipped the house mm-hmm. so we could impeach him. We impeached him. And what happened? Well, that's what I'm saying. The Senate was nothing. Not, they weren't going to do their jobs, which is so sad that we're, we're, we're looking at such egregious partisanship. I mean, it's, it's crazy. If Obama had done one, one of the things on the laundry list of violations of this country that Trump has committed, they would have impeached him so fast. Well, yeah, the thing that that Trump got impeached for is the reason they put impeachment in the Constitution. Yes. It's the reason it's there. The reason. Foreign interference, abuse of power. Yeah. And they they didn't. They were like, oh, Susan Collins, well, he'll learn his lesson. (laughs) No. Really, how are you feeling today, Susan? I know, it's so strange. How do you... Because, look, everything we're talking about is a bit anxiety-inducing. I I feel fired up by that to go out and fight. How are you keeping yourself sane? How are you, how are you keeping yourself happy? The podcast. Mm. Just Me every too. day. <laughs> this. Right? Just every day yeah. talking and talking to people like you and um, just incredible people like Joyce Vance or mm. Renato Mariotti, like former U.S. attorneys who were like uh, Barb McQuaid. They, they're putting out pieces who were like, oh my God, what's happening to the Department of Justice? And commiserating with people who've been there and know mm. more than I do and just talking about it every day and laughing, making jokes, being able to laugh about it. Um, that is literally what's keeping me afloat in this political climate. Mm. And what's next for you now that, you know, you're not at least working for this government? Do you want to do you want to get back to government service when this nightmare is over? Yeah. When we elect another president, I want to. Yeah, I want to go back. But right now, what's next for me is just keep delivering the news with Mm -hmm. swears. Mm -hmm. So one of my favorite questions to ask everyone who comes on the podcast, because it is called work in progress is when you hear that phrase, what jumps to mind first for you as a work in progress in your life? Oh, me. Uh, I'm trying to, I'm going through a divorce right now. Mm. I was in an abusive uh, relationship. And I'm trying to, instead of seeing myself as broken because of what happened to me, I'm trying to think of myself as awesome for surviving it. Mm. And that's been really, really hard to jump from, from feeling broken to feeling badass. I'm working on it though. It's a work in progress. I get that. You are pretty badass. And I think for whatever it's worth, I mean, something that was really striking for me in, cause you talked about how your grades went up after your assault, you know, that was your coping mechanism. Research is my coping mechanism. I need to understand it. I'm like, okay, trauma, how does it work? How does it work in the brain? What happens to your brain tissue? How exactly do human bodies respond to threat? What does it mean? And oh, we call it fight or flight, but that's actually not true. It's freeze, flight, fight. Fight is the last resort. Freeze is the most common. This is why people, I, I need to sort of unpack all of it and understand it. And something that I think Every person who survived any version of trauma deserves to know is that when it happens to you, it, it, op- it opens sort of more space in your, what's the word I'm looking for? Your spectrum of experience, right? Like your spectrum line gets longer. 
which means that then later in life, other experiences have a longer line to travel. They can push into territory that is more dangerous or more threatening. Well, yeah, I'm so good at dissociating that I didn't mm-hmm. realize I was in an abusive situation for so long mm-hmm. because I'm able to just check out. Of course. As a protection we- mechanism. Yes, which is, it crushes me, but also what I think about is that the widening of perspective, that spectrum being bigger means that you have such a wider lens for feeling and for empathy. And so the thing that has harmed you has also given you a superpower. And and that, I think, if I can offer anything as thanks for you coming and talking about this with all of us today, is that that should be such a signifier of what a badass you are. Like, you, you have a bigger spectrum of feeling, and now you get to learn how to wield that superpower and use it on one end and, and less on the other. And, of course, that's a work in progress. Like... Look at any superhero movie you've ever watched. It takes people time to figure out how to, you know, wield it. And I love that idea. There's a quote from um, Khalil Gibran. Mm -hmm. uh, He said, the deeper sorrow digs into your soul, Mm -hmm. the larger the well that holds happiness. Mm -hmm. So I really, I feel, I feel so much what you're talking about. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for coming today. This was very cool. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnick. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. This episode was edited by Matt Sasaki. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Cloud 10 and Brilliant Anatomy. Powered by Simplecast. Simplecast.